and welcome back or welcome to the on coaching podcast i'm steve magnus joined by my good friend colleague fellow coach jonathan marcus john my man what's going on man just happy to be here steven because it's another episode where we're giving the people exactly what they want the good 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 stuff oh yes another episode where we dive deep into a topic that affects coaches athletes and basically your ability to run faster but before we get into that if you want to run faster if you want to get better results you know what you need to do what you need to do you need to join the scholar program the world yes you do yes you do it's awesome (laughs) it is the number one resource on everything running and you know what we just upped our game. We just launched recently a Scholar Program server, which is interaction to the max, where John, I, everybody that's part of a Scholar, we just, you know, hop on our phone, messaging, videos, message board, whatever you want to call it. It's all right there where we've got interaction so that you can have your, your questions answered you got a problem we're gonna help you fix it and not just us but the brain trust that is the scholar program which has you know honestly some of the best coaches in the world i won't name all of them but that but if you look at the list there are there are some gems out there oh yeah we got nca mike smith is on there he's an annual subscriber yes and Not only that, but the best part about it is it's not just what you've done, but we've got some phenomenal high school coaches who are on the cutting edge, do amazing things, and might not have that recognition, but man, picking their brain is is always good. This is what it's about, mentorship, right? If you want to get better, get a mentor, and you only can go so far with books, articles, listening to podcasts like this, and this is where Steve and I were just really frustrated because we wanted to have more engagement, higher quality engagement and a better dialogue and relationship with our scholars. And we said, how do we do this? And it took us over a year to develop the server and kind of get it right so that we could actually have live real time responses, interaction and dialogue, not just only for us one way from us to you, but collectively. And this is how we will all level up. And this is why it's so Awesome to join the Scholar Program right now if you haven't. All right. So let's dive into this week's episode, which is the law of the minimum, a better way to think about training. Now, a lot of coaches are going to hear that or see that title and be like, what in the world are you talking about, John? What are we talking about? Well, the law of the minimum is an agricultural law that states The growth of an organism is dictated not by the total resources available, but by the scarcest resource, the limiting factor. And when we we step back and think about it, it's very much true and applies to distance running. Bingo. And you know what? If you have time, go Google Law of Minimum. Look at the Wikipedia article, okay? And you're going to see this wonderful, wonderful graphic, which is essentially a barrel full of water, right? But it doesn't matter that 99% of the barrel is like at the highest level. There's one little rung that is lower than the others. So the water is going to flow out. And that's what we're talking about with the law of the minimum is a lot of times what happens in coaching. What does this have to do with coaching? A lot of times what happens is we focus on building our capacities in all these areas right in the main kind of areas but what happens is your limiting factor shifts and you can get better and better and better at we'll just say you know your endurance for example but if that's not the limiting factor then keeping improving that endurance isn't going to improve your performance so the one of the key factors as a coach is to understand and figure out where your limiting factors are and how they shift for for an athlete. And I think this is this is also and we'll dive into this. This is also why repeating the same training program year after year after year 
ultimately fails. Why? Because we're changing the limiting factor. We're changing the minimum because, you know, training fundamentally changes the person. So if we do this training for a year, like his limiting factor, the thing that prevents him or her from jumping to the next level has now shifted. And even as a coach, we have to be cognizant of our own limiting factors as well. And that's where like a really deep inventory and period of review and reflection is vitally important, you know, both debriefing after a season as well as getting ready for a season. And this is why Steve and I are so passionate about continuing education because it's helped us level up our game and helped our athletes get a lot better. Like when I fully was exposed to and understood after dialogues with Steve and, you know, email messages back and forth with Canova about lactate dynamic work and alternations and how utilizing lactate as a fueling substrate to help ward off the consumption of glycogen for an athlete could make them a lot faster, not only for the marathon, but also on the track. Guess what? Everyone that I was working with got a heck of a lot faster and they had a whole lot more fun. But had I not cracked that puzzle or said, man, I don't understand this and had the humility to actually go out and seek counsel and education on this, I would probably still be writing the same type of workouts, the same type of training with the same type of ceiling for the athletes and just scratching my head and going, I don't know why. And, you know, typically what we do when we don't know something, we tend to um, credit that limitation to external in, you know, forces. Oh, it's the athlete's fault. They're not, you know, hydrating enough. They're not doing this enough. They're not doing that enough. That's where, no, you got to turn the mirror around, so to speak, and look at yourself at it and say, how do I get better and level up and create a better environment, not just training wise, but also culturally, relationally with athletes to help them level up. You know, I'm glad you brought that up, John, because I think as a coach, we often think of how our training can help athletes and all that stuff and like how the athlete is handling things. But as coaches, we have limiting factors too. And a lot of that has to do with like our education and upbringing, right? As a coach, because we get taught in one system, you know, of this is important, this worked for me, et cetera, et cetera. And then we start implementing that. And we we often lose sight of our blind spots, you know. And what both you and I and many other very good coaches and, you know, high school coaches and everybody has done is try to look for those blind spots, right? So it's why you see so many you know, distance coaches may be taking uh, the Altus sprint course, right? Because they realize, hey, I learned in this paradigm that is, you know, distance running physiology, but um, heavy, I need to understand this over here that I don't get. And the same goes for, you know, I know a lot of good uh, distance coaches who took, you know, various strength and conditioning certifications or courses, why? Because again, they say, hey, you know, I'm really knowledgeable in this area of physiology and VO2 max and lactate thresholds, but I I need to up my game in this strength, power, you know, um, all these different attributes over here because, you know, it, it's my weak spot. And the same thing you see, you know, coaches as well dive into the psychology, whatever it is. But we all have these kind of weak points based on like our education and experience. So where we can fill that gap and part of being a good coach is continually challenging yourself because a coach is like the anti-specialist, you know, like we have our own specialty, but we need to know uh, a decent amount about a lot of things because especially in the in the track and field distance running world. It's not like we're going to have access to a specialist who can work on biomechanics and then a specialist who can help our strength and a specialist who can help our flexibility and mobility. Like it is a lot for a lot of high school and college coaches and even pro side, like it is them on their own figuring out and creating all of these things. Yeah. The limiting factor sometimes within your coaching organization is personnel. 
not having enough bodies, peoples and coaches to actually um, with a wide range of expertise, because, you know, this isn't a, a multi-billion dollar enterprise, like say football or basketball or wherever, where you can have sports performance directors, assistant directors, uh, sports psych, you know, that's just dedicated, a, you know, t- uh, training table that's just dedicated to that team. So our job as coaches is to have the, yes, a journalist attitude to be able to then uh, integrate cross-disciplinary concepts ac- accurately into how we coach. And I think we spend a lot of time, too, worrying and deciding on what to do. That's the science, right? What's the reps, sets, pace, volume, prescription, the what, the what, the what. But, you know, we also have to wed that to the how. How are we delivering the message? How are they moving and doing these um, workouts and workabouts, right? That art side of it is an important craft and where mentorship and cross-disciplinary mentorship is important as well. And I've learned so much from, you know, my mentors who are not distance coaches that builds on the foundation of the mentorships that I, and the knowledge I got from my uh, cohort of mentors who are distance coaches. So this is vulnerability in action, right? We talk about that a lot. It's a pop culture, you know, buzzword at the moment, but what vulnerability is, is identifying those weak spots or those limiting factors in yourself and then actually going out and addressing it. But so many people don't want to take the, you know, the time to do that diagnostic and identify those uh, limiting factors. And then we don't do anything about it because we don't want to uh, believe or address our weaknesses. But again, you're only as strong as your weakest link. This is why I love cross country because it demonstrates that in full force, (laughs) right? You're only as strong as your weakest runner. And so if you get that weaker runner, that fifth runner, seventh runner to a higher standard of uh, uh, fitness, then the whole team flourishes, right? Same situation here. And then, you know, now the key is, okay, we've talked about this a little bit from introduction. How do we identify it? What are concrete tactics and strategies to then actually address it and get it better and create and track outcomes once we have that identification in place? Yeah, so let's start with identifying. And I'll go with, you know, the coach's view and we can talk about know how to look at it in your athletes um from a coach's view i think it's 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 self-awareness and exposure self-awareness meaning like you have to be brutally honest with yourself on what you know and what you don't know which can be hard because as you said it elicits this vulnerability this like oh my gosh i don't know everything um one of the best ways you can do this is you know, or that can make you aware of this is in interacting with your athletes. If they ask you a question or if they have an issue or, you know, they ask you for some help on something and instead of BSing your way through it, you sit there and you'd be like, you know what? I don't know, you know, but I'm going to try and find, I'll try and figure it out. Like that simple recognition is often what led me to, you know, um, some of my, quests on one-upping or or limiting my limiting factors because I realized you know what a a kid asked me a question on like this this strength exercise we're doing and I don't I honestly don't have the answer I can make something up but I don't have the actual answer so I need to spend time to understand that so that's number one on the coach's side but I think the other part on the coach's side is self-awareness only works if like you are you are aware of the world outside of yourself, mm-hmm. you know? So what does that mean? Spending time conversing, like going to clinics, uh, talking, shooting the shit with other coaches. And like we've talked about outside of your own domain, spending time with, you know, the coaches in football, basketball, whatever have you, strength and conditioning coaches who work in other sports, you know, sports psychologists who work in, and team sports, you know, even as simple as following people on Twitter outside of the running world who do really good stuff and, you know, baseball, basketball, football, you know, hockey, cross country skiing, whatever it is, the good cycling, the good people in other areas, like 
They might not know anything about sport, but you're going to see how different different domains, people succeeding in different domains do it. And you're going to pick out, hey, like this is something, this is something that I need to be keen on and aware of and all that stuff. So I think from a coach's perspective, it's those two things, right? Self-awareness, like going internal, being brutally honest with yourself, but then exposing yourself to enough information and diverse array of information so that you can become keenly aware of like what you're not good at. Yeah. Exposure is key. I mean, that is the beauty of being alive right now is our, you know, the ease of exposure that we have at our fingertips with, you know, social media, the internet podcasts, all these types of things. However, we, it's, you know, a double-edged sword. We got to be careful because there's a lot of ideas floating out in the ether, right? In a, 90% 90% of them is junk. I mean, it looks fancy. It's just there to grab your attention or what have you. The key is, is look for, you know, people who are truly practicing what they're pre or practicing what they're preaching practitioners who have demonstrated longitudinal, reliable success. Um, you know, people who don't necessarily need to be out there putting themselves out there, right? Those are the key because they're showing up to, you know, exchange ideas and to make people aware of, hey, these are really important things we're doing. And it's so important that I'll explain it with a article, I'll explain it, you know, in a tweet, or, you know, an Instagram post, but all the other like, <laughs> look at me junk that's out there, which can, you know, fool you because this might be a lot of followers or it might be popular. You got to make sure it's, it's accurate. Like one of the biggest misconcepts out there where there's a lot of uh, ideas and um, content is running form and what really that means. And I have looked and scoured most of it's junk, right? But the people who actually understand this, you know, sprint coaches like Stu McMillan and Dan Path and, you know, at Altus and that whole group, Vern Gambetta, um, Tom Telez with his book, like, you know, those are people who really get it and who are, you know, talking specifically with a background in physics and anatomy as well as physiology about why we want certain positions and postures to produce power and to engage the soft um, connective tissue in the short stretching cycle to get that non-caloric energy that's free if you position your foot and limbs correctly on ground contact, right? Those are the people to listen to. The people are just saying, hey, my cadence is this. Hey, you want to make sure you have... No, 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 no. Like they have no idea what they're talking about. They There might be some correlation there that yes, faster runners have a cadence in this um, step rate at, at this level, or maybe faster runners, um, you know, have an arm swing pattern that looks like this. They observed this, but they can't explain it. And that's, that, that's the biggest red flag. And same thing as a coach, right? So we spend a lot of time observing athletes. And, you know, one, always be fully present. Steve and I talk about this all the time. Don't be tweeting. Don't be texting. Like when you're at practice, you're at practice, a professional, 100% there observing, engaging, getting after it. You're not, you know, just sitting here eating a, you know, a hoagie, um, hanging out on like the, the, the a Swiss ball, right? And, you know, with the other hand looking at Twitter or Instagram, no, you're fully engaged. And from that observation, what happens is you start to notice limiting factors in your athletes, but then how you present it, going back to the how, to the athlete is very critical because that delivery of your observation, your identification of that limiting factor is going to either get that initial buy-in or initial rejection from the athlete. Yeah, you know, I'm glad you, I'm glad you brought that up because it is like it's exposure to various information and I think this is where it's important to like expose yourself to enough information so that you can start to sort through the depths of it, right? And there's so much good and bad info out there that like the only way you sort through it is if you like take the, t- the time to understand it at a relatively deep enough level where you can see who who's like the people 
who've got skin in the game applying it versus those who kind of are just, you know, observing something and can't explain it at all. So I think that's that's a good point in there. And it's also the the point I'd add on there is that really good, you know, people are going to disagree. You know, a Vern Gambetta is going to disagree with a Stu McMillan at Altus occasionally. Oh, but yeah. if, if you look at what they're disagreeing on, it's in what I'd call the nuance of it, right? And it might seem really big because sometimes they get really, you know, you can argue a lot over that nuance, right? And they're just like, oh, this, no, it's this, no, it's this. And I've seen Tom Telez do this too. But if you step back, you realize, oh, they're arguing over this like one minute point, which yes, matters in their world of, of perfection, but they're not over arguing over these like big overarching general concepts, right? They agree. Yeah, they agree 100% on the big rocks, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and that's generally what you see is, is the key there, right? If the commonalities, if there's commonalities b- b- between agreeing on the big rocks between these different camps of of experts, then you have a pretty good understanding and a pretty good idea of, you know what, these big rocks are pretty, are going to be right. You know, I'm going to focus on this and I'll let them sort through and argue over the nuance. And it's not necessarily an argument. It's different solutions or pieces to the puzzle. When we think of training and performance as a puzzle where yes, there's science uh, that needs to be an evidence that is useful and helpful to to us to help solve puzzles, but also there's art and there's knowledge. And what knowledge is, right? Knowledge is theory plus experience. So some people are really poor on theory, but really um, rich in experience. Other people, it's the inverse, right? And that's what, you know, a lot of practitioners try to do is balance their theory, their theoretical knowledge with experiential knowledge to create the best holistic knowledge or what we call understanding or wisdom to then apply that to their situation and the athlete population they're working with in the correct way. Because how I would apply solutions to the law of the minimum for a high school runner will be vastly different than how I might apply it to a master's or semi-professional runner. And so it's that key identification of having those different lenses being able to filter correctly and then having a bigger toolbox with more sophisticated tools in there. That's, that is one of the key things. And that's where this inventory is important. So open your kind of toolbox of theory, as well as your toolbox of experience. And if you only have one year coaching, two year coaching, or you've only coached five athletes in the same way for the last, you know, uh, you know, 30 months, it's, it's, it's very clear you might need different tools to do different jobs because they all have different levels of sophistication. And again, going back to the buy-in part though, that's the key, right? If athletes see you wanting to get better by saying, Hey, I'm going to this clinic or I attended this webinar or, you know, I went to this summit, you know, that's key. I mean, Vern's uh, gain clinic huge. Like I went there, paid full price, you know, heard Steve talk, heard Vern talk, heard a lot of like, you know, other, uh, you know, really made Eddie Jones, right? I mean, rugby coaches, like throws coaches, very valuable. Or, you know, went to Martin Basinger's 2016, um, you know, Hammer Media Summit that was, and helped them set it up when we had the world championships indoor here in Portland. And I heard, you know, uh, you know, JP talk about coaching Valerie Adams and Tom Walsh in the shop put, and it was phenomenal, right? Or coaching, um, you know, uh, uh, Werner, uh, I forget his name, uh, the, the one time world shop put champion and um, uh, world record holder in the event, right? And so when you hear all these different perspectives from the different coaches, it changes your hard wiring and it changes the way you think because they're thinking in different ways to solve problems for their sport. But that cross disciplinary thought process is really important to be exposed to and digest. So seek them out continuously because that is what will make you better and ultimately make your athletes significantly better. 
Yeah, you know, I'm I'm glad you pointed that out, John, because I think it's that exposure to diverse, you know, sports that is often our limiting factor because we get so, you know, constrained. And I've I've seen this in other sports as well, as you get so stuck in your little world that you forget that the answers often are outside of it. And it really is, you know, to use the metaphor, it really is about increasing the tools in your toolbox so that when the problem arises, you have the right tool. And the more tools you can accumulate and figure out how to use, the increased likelihood that like when it comes to you and your athlete, whatever problem arises, you're going to have a tool that fits it versus just having a a hammer and a screwdriver or whatever have you for that metaphor. So, you know, we've talked about as coaches, how our limiting factors, what to do about them, right? Exposure to information, like finding others, mentors, you know, self-awareness, all that stuff. Now, maybe let's talk about how we apply this limiting factor to the athletes. Excellent. So there's, for me, it's all about different buckets, right? And they're not separate. They uh, exist on a spectrum and they're all kind of like connected. But to athletes, there's, you know, essentially only a handful of different limiting factors that we're always trying to address as coaches. So if we get to the, you know, the actual science or physiology of it and the neurology of it, it's okay. Do we have an endurance problem? Do we have a speed problem? Or do we have a strength problem? right? Or a combination of those. Then also to look at like the motor development or biomotor quality. Sometimes those problems are related to a mobility problem, a stability problem, right? Um, a just overall um, coordination problem. So those problem, those then factor into those bigger buckets, right? And then we also have to though look at not just the mechanics of the human body and what it's doing and how it's doing it or not, we also have to look at the the person. So what it, as a person, where are their limiting factors? Are they not getting enough sleep or is nutrition inadequate or hydration inadequate consistently? Are they in an environment, home life, social life that's highly stressful, unreliable, inconsistent? What's their general attitude and affect, right? What's the emotional status of them? Are they bought in, not bought in, just going through the motions? So where do you start, right? It's There's a lot to consider. I always start with the person first. You know, first you just want to get them dialed in, bought in, you know, and being able to control their controllables in their life before you can actually address the like uh, mechanical or bodily um limiting factors because without the person being engaged, fully engaged and present and bought in, you can do all the most sophisticated, great training in the world, but you know what? It's, they're not going to absorb it. The, the impact it's going to have is going to be very minuscule versus if they you know, level up their recovery and their ownership of being an athlete and their buy-in towards wanting to get better, then they're going to come to practice, engage, get the most out of every um, exercise, workout, drill, and they're going to be a great teammate. They're going to be a better, you know, overall person and people are going to want to be around them and they'll become a linchpin for your team. And that's always the charge is saying, how do I get the emotionally, um, you know, distant or dysfunction, semi-dysfunctional athlete to actually convert them as a linchpin, someone who is a hub of enthusiasm and energy for this team and that's a tough job to do, but as a coach, it's one of the most rewarding jobs we can do when it actually happens. I've seen it happen with other coaches and, and programs and also with athletes and programs I've worked with and teams I've, um, you know, uh, headed. Yeah. You know, I think it, I like the buckets approach. I take something similar in the sense that you look around at what the athlete has, you know, in terms of their capabilities, and we're talking capabilities, you can define it however you want, but we're talking endurance, we're talking speed, we're talking specific, you know, endurance, we're talking psychology, we're talking strength, mechanics, whatever, whatever it is, right? And you're kind of doing this evaluative checklist, right, of where do they stand? 
And it's where do they stand relative to what they're trying to accomplish, right? And, and the simplest example that's been done for, you know, decades and probably a century is, you know, look at their speed. Do they have, you know, if someone is trying to run two minutes for 800, this is the old Lydiard example, right? Can he run, you know, even a 460 seconds? If he can't, then we're in problem, right? You know, and it's like you you essentially just got to look above it. I call it looking above and below. And sometimes you got to look just one level up, sometimes 10 levels up or one level down or 10 levels down. Because at every step along the way, if we're talking about just physical performance, like there is a limiting factor. And I'll give you an example to try to drive this home for you guys, the listeners. Um when I was coaching Brian Barraza in college, I remember, well, his first cross-country season as a freshman, I think he was something like, I don't know, fifth at the conference meet in cross-country. And it was right behind, um, we had another guy who was fourth, who at that time was like a 403 type miler. So, um I knew Brian was in legit good, you know, shape. I was like, man, this kid just ran 8K, ran really fast, like has good natural endurance. He'd do pretty well at the tempo runs and thresholds and stuff we were doing. But then as we transitioned to track, what I clearly noticed was his limiting speed or his limiting factor, not at this moment, but in the future would be his speed. Because at this moment, we still had more room to grow, even though he was a distance monster at that point, like our other top runner, Jonas, and myself, like, would drop him on, like, threshold and tempo runs. This was back in the days when I was in shape still. But we would drop Brian, not intentionally, but, like, you could see that, like, he didn't have that aerobic capacity. So we could still build that, and we were still doing that, and he was going to get better year after year by building this aerobic capacity. But that freshman year, I remember I threw him in at 800, and he ran, like, 155, even splitting it, like, flat out, you know? And I remember thinking, 155 is not going to cut it when this kid has the aerobic ability to run, you know, at that time, I thought at least mid 13, you know, 1330s, whatever it was, you know, I was like, he has this talent, but 155 isn't going to cut it. So his limiting factor right now, like that speed wasn't a lim- quote unquote limiting factor at that point, because he'd come into high school running, I don't know, 906 for two miles. Right. And was only running, you know, not crazy in the 5k as freshman year, Lisa endorse, like we could still get a lot of bang for our buck on the endurance stuff. But I knew over time, I said, you know what? Eventually like this endurance stuff is going to be harder and harder to come by. And we're going to be taking more and more, you know, smaller and smaller chips off of it. The limiting factor is going to be at sometimes how fast can this kid run? <laughs> So we went to work with like hill sprints and other stuff on like, we got to get them faster, not only under over 800, but over 400, right? And, you know, by his time as junior year, I think he ran, you know, he ran 1,800, ran 152 low indoors in his only 800, and then actually ran a four by four outdoors and split like, it was like 50.0 or something like that, where if if we didn't run one his freshman year, but his freshman year, if he ran an all-out 400, it would have probably been like 53, you know? And, and like that allowed him, I think, to like further explore his ability because it's like, okay, you're not, gonna, not ever going to be the fastest or the kid with the best speed endurance in the planet, but this will no longer prevent you from getting to at least a you know, national slash international level. Now, at some point you might have to come back and like develop this even more. It might be your limiting factor again, but like, that's how you have to think as a coach is, is think of not only, Hey, what's their limiting factor right now, but what is, if this person has the goods even to make it to college, like what's going to, 
what's going to set them up for success and eventually be the roadblock that gets in their way? Because it's very easy in the moment, especially when you're young in high school or college, to be like, you know what? Their limiting factor is everything. <laughs> because they're, you, you know what I mean? Lack like, of exposure. Yeah, exactly. La yeah. Lack of exposure. So I can just do this one thing and they're going to get better and I'm going to look good, at it, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. But eventually, as they gain that exposure, gain that training, they're going to run up against a wall. And we have to figure out where that wall is. And sometimes it's the opposite. You know, a lot of times we talk about your limiting factor is your speed. And that's true for a lot of people. But sometimes, you know, especially with 800 runners, I've looked at 800 runners and been like, you know what? You have great speed, but man, we got to get this endurance up. Like, you know, I've thrown so many 800 runners into college cross country races, and some of them have not been very pretty. But we do it because I'm like, we did it because I'm like, man, your endurance kind of sucks and you got to get used to hurting for a while. And I know this isn't going to be pretty and you're going to run like, you know, one year we had, you know, a guy who I could very clearly tell this and he ran like 550 pace for, you know, 6K or whatever the cross country race was. And it was hurt, man. He was trying so hard. But like that endurance and that like suffering, I believe, you know, then led him to run, you know, place, place top two at our conference meet indoors, you know, the following season when the year before he didn't even make the conference final because like he, that was that, that ability to hurt slash endurance was going to be a limiting factor. So it's just kind of being aware of not only in the short term, but also over the long haul of where are these roadblocks going to arise? And I think, you know, culturally, you know, the current paradigm in uh, distance running, what Lydia identified so well was at his time, endurance or stamina was a limiting factor for a lot of uh, athletes, right? And so what did he do? He swung in the opposite side of the pendulum and said, okay, everyone has this foundation of speed right? because interval training was in vogue, fartlek training, right? So people were running a lot, were running fast, but with big rest or what have you. And what he identified was, oh, we need endurance first, because his whole th uh, thesis was speed doesn't disappear. And which is true, because speed is, uh, you know, foundation founded in the neurological capacity and the coordinated capacity of that, um, you know, motor system, right? So it's like riding a bike, you never really forget, even if you haven't done it for years and years and years after you after you first have learned and ingrained it, right? But now we face the inverse, where, you know, today, Everyone is well endowed. Okay, I need to work on endurance. So I'm just going to go run, 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 which is great. But we now culturally lack in what we see in the Western um, distance uh, running and coaching, a fundamental understanding of how to condition and program and ingrained speed or coordination or ultimately power, right? Power is velocity and force. And so then for me as a coach, I first look to that with a lot of the athletes I take on because they are a little bit later in their development. So they've gone through high school, they've gone through college. They've developed that endurance very adequately, you know, to the point where like, okay, they they can recover very quick. Because that's one of the key things for middle distance runners of developing endurance is they need to have the recoverability or the resiliency to embrace these workouts or rounds, but also bounce back really quick. And that aerobic uh, mechanism of recovery is vital. So you hear a lot of sprint coaches going, oh, no aerobic stuff ever for 800 meter runners. They just need a, you know more speed, more speed, more speed. Not, not necessarily true because, again, the density of intense work you want them to do, whether it's compacted within a session or between sessions or week to week, is influenced by that recoverability. So that's a key reason why endurance does need to be addressed with 800 meter runner. However, going back to distance runners, speeds can be the limiting factor. So then how do we address it? You know, do you just start throwing hills and all the skill specific stuff at them? Not necessarily. The fun part about kind of progressive training is you can lay a foundation by doing, you know, general work and this idea of a general prep period that is going to lay the like learning or neurological or motor foundation for then the skill specific work. So what is foundational speed work look like? Well, it looks like medicine ball slams. It looks like um, reactive jumping where, you know, you might have 
a kind of kangaroo type motion over six inch hurdles or even through like those agility or um, ladders, right? It might look like jump roping, something as simple as that, just to kind of get this short freshening reflex um, to uh, turn on and be engaged and kind of get a little bit better range of motion in like the ankle joint and or the hip joint, right? So doing that kind of stuff initially is very taxing on an athlete who has a, a high sensitivity to it, who is not, haven't been exposed to it. But then after, the, you know, a period of time of about three weeks, six weeks, you can start to layer in some of the stuff Steve has been talking about, the hill sprints, uh, the all-out fly sprints. And because they'll have a better motor map and motor pattern about how to solve it versus if we just jump immediately right into, oh, you're poor in speed, so we just need to do 200s or 100s or 150s or 40-meter flies. What can happen there is, you know, they don't have a movement solution to contract and relax at such, you know, rapid velocities that they might be able to get away with it for one or two sessions, but that's when the then aches and pains and overuse injuries and strains can like rear their, their ugly head. So even too, when we do address these limiting factors, we have to be very, very smart and introduce the, the um, building of them in a progressive manner. Otherwise we end up, you know, kind of like just crashing into a wall and dead ending a season or sometimes even a career. You know, you bring up a really good point there. Um, and I agree with you on, on the, the training and progressions and all that, but you bring up a really good point there that a lot of the training, uh, shifts or breakthroughs or what have you are a response to the current time and climate they're in. And this is why, like, whenever we see training systems, we have to understand like the context of them. And I, you know, I've had conversations with our good friend Vern Gambetta on this when, you know, we were talking Lydiard and Peter Snell. And one of the things he, he pointed out is you have to remember that this was like the 1960s, 50s and 60s. Like Peter Snell was not sitting around and playing video games, you know. Peter Snell was a was an athlete doing all these various other things and had like what we now call like this farm boy strength to a degree also because of his his you know natural genetics and all that stuff. So Lydiard saw like hey, we've got this foundation. Everybody's doing intervals. I'm going to go in the other direction and, and get this balance back. And he didn't stop doing intervals. He didn't stop doing sprint work as we've talked numerous times, but he brought that balance back and said, Hey, this is the, the factor, you know, no different than, you know, uh, Peter Co was Sebco after a large, you know, a long volume uh, kind of based approach during the sixties and seventies. In the 80s, Peter Coe says, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to go in the opposite direction a little bit and bring this this other stuff back, weightlifting, circuit training, you know, some intense speed work, etc. Every training system, every coach is responding to the environment he or she is in. And I think that that is key and that is also why there's no magic training system. It's also why recently what have you seen, whether it's, you know, uh, Inger Britson or Tin Man, Tom Schwartz or whatever, you're seeing this kind of, you've seen this growth of what we'd call controlled threshold or critical velocity or whatever you want to call the stuff all in that zone. Sometimes with Inger Britson controlled, meaning uh, or controlled by lactate levels and stuff like that, you're seeing this more controlled approach. Well, why is that? Well, you know, for a while you saw this hit of, of, um, of, you know, making your hard days very hard, which is true and works, but this is just a slight reaction to that, you know? So it, it, it and, and that doesn't mean it's good or bad or indifferent. It's just every coaching response 
every coaching shift or new prayer dime is something that's been done before, but you're responding to the context within that you're within. And I think that's such an important point to understand instead of saying, hey, I'm searching for the golden goose of training programs, understand that all the coaches and all the good coaches are looking around at the context where their athletes are, where the, you know, the training kind of philosophy has shifted in recent years and, you know, course corrected slightly. And this is why you have to be so passionate about what you're doing, because this is not a profession where you can just set and forget, right? It's like, oh, got the training program. We're good. Planned out the whole year. We're just going to follow, follow the plan, folks. No, I mean, performance influences are all are dynamic. Very fluid, right? So there was a a great presentation by Gary Winkler at the Gain Clinic, and he talked about this. And he goes, "Well, back in the day, even from a speed power standpoint, like what did they, you know, value? They valued training volume, max strength. Um, They coached rigid, specific postures, made sure they were like exact. You know, the the quality, the quantity of um, ground forces, like how many times were you hitting the ground? You know, overall." Strength was the the leading paradigm and it was like this constant training, right? Block training kind of taken to the nth degree where it's like, we're just going to do the same program every single day, no matter what, right? And what happened now is the the paradigm and understanding has shifted, right? So now it's about training quality versus volume, reactive strength versus max strength, right? The resulting postures from athletes kind of self-organizing and creating uh, movement solutions to different uh, demands or problems that are being exposed to in training, the quality of your ground force, uh, contact force. And, you know, the instead of strength being the thing that everyone is, um, you know, searching for and championing, it's coordination because that's found fundamental and even more, even foundational to strength. And finally, instead of, you know, block training is what they call eclectic prescription, which is this idea and the German liter- or German and Russian literature of highly variable training, where instead of it just being very systematic and linear and predicted, it's a little something different every day because that's what farm strength is, is you don't go out and, you know, buck hay or lift buckets and carry this the same distance for the same time or tomorrow it's you know, next week it's two pounds more. It's a little something different every day. Generally the same type of movement pattern, but overall it differentiates based on the demands on the farm, right? And so this is the exciting part about being passionate and understanding it's constant learning. And constant learning also means having the humility, as Steve and I have shared many a times, of realizing what we used to do wasn't really that effective it, and athletes succeed in spite of the training we subject them to that at the time with our limited scope of awareness and knowledge we thought oh yeah this is it and you know that's the fun part about this recipe of training is the big rocks are key for sure you got to have your butter flour eggs to bake the cake but as we you know progress there's other ways to do it that might not necessarily, um, you know, be the same as it was before where the spices are a little different. The type of sugar you're using, you know, might be brown sugar instead of white sugar, right? We just know a little bit more. And I'll speak to, you know, limiting factors with athletes I've worked with that are more, that are kind of, uh, you know, end of one, so to speak, where it wasn't necessarily about their ability or their buy-in, but it was about the body and the um, limitants of the body that were there when I showed up. So a good example is when I was coaching college, I had an athlete, she showed up with a torn labrum because she was a soccer player. And, but she was a really feisty, competitive, all-in runner. She wanted to be as good as she could be, right? So her limiting factor was functional. It was like, you have this tear in the hip and my concern was like, hey, I want you to be able to have mobility and move high movement quality throughout your lifespan, not just like your play span here, you know, in college. So we had to figure out ways to train her to get her strong, but not aggravate this hip. And I leaned a lot on, you know, medical practitioners, PTs, our athletic trainers, 
Extrada saying, okay, what can we do? What are the symptoms I need to look for? And getting her buy-in. And she was, you know, one tough cookie and sometimes wouldn't tell me when she was in pain. Um, but getting her buy-in to be like, hey, it looks okay to be in pain. We will then alter the session or do some other type of conditioning work to raise your fitness level to where it needs to be to be competitive on the track. And she ended up, you know, being one of, you know, having a great senior year. She was all conference in, you know, the, the eight, uh, the 1500 and the 5k, uh, scored big points, like top three, uh, you know, marks of all time at the school. Like she had a blast, man. It was awesome. Um, but that was because we identified, we have to manage this limiting factor. We can't necessarily, and that's sometimes the hard part, right? Sometimes you can't put the slat in the barrel to let the, the, the wire go all the way. You have to manage it. You have to like kind of plug it, uh, you know, put your hand on it, let it leak a little less. Another athlete, she had a really weird neurological dysfunction in her, you know, uh, lumbar spine that would, if the, um, the facet was jarred or impacted in just, just a, some right way, it would actually like shut the nerve off that goes down to her leg. And so, and so she would run and then someone would push her or in cross country, she'd hit a rock weird or a turn weird or in track, like too much force on tight turns indoors, thing would just shut off. And this young woman was plenty fast. She was a high quality 800 meter runner, like, you know, 209, 208 before special shoes, right? Um, really good foot speed. You know, in, she was a sprinter, started off in high school, a small school. I mean, she could run sub, sub 60, no problem. But once that thing flared up, it was like, all right, you're, you're on the shelf for several, you know, days, if not a couple of weeks. And so there were these large interruption gaps to training. So what we ultimately figured out was like, we had to move her up in distance because she could tolerate slower volume or work, less force output. But the really fast, fast, fast speed work, what would happen is she would just go after it and like kind of let loose, so to speak, but then potentially put, uh, you know, her, her limb in a non-virtuous posture that would then cause this, you know, jarring to happen and boom, all right, the nerve gets pinched and turns off. And now she's like literally just, you know, peg legging it in. So we transitioned her from an 800, 1500 meter runner to actually a 10 K runner. And she had great success in the 10 K in college. She, you know, almost set the school record. She made it to regionals. Uh, you know, like she, you know, like I think she either ran 34 flat or just broke it back at the time before super shoes. That was a big thing. And it was like phenomenal. And one, she didn't get hurt. She had a complete senior year. You know, she was really, um, had a great cross country season, had a phenomenal outdoor season and just left the sport and graduated on a really high positive note. Because again, we managed that really well. And along the way, she ran some faster 15s, like, you know, set the school record in the 15, but then it was never the focal point because what we were trying to manage was not missing any more, any more training or racing because she had to take the whole, her whole junior year off because of this neurological disorder and us figuring out what it was because she tweaked it in an indoor race and then just didn't run a step from that January to that uh, June. And so I was super cautious to make sure she had a really positive experience her senior year. So again, sometimes these um, laws of the minimums are things we can't really change, but have to work around. And that's the fun part. It's also really hard because you can't, I mean, looking around saying, hey, have, have you done this before? Have you done this before? Is there any kind of articles or things out there that's, no, there's not. And that's where you got to solve the problem um, the best you can in the moment and why that education mentorship dialogue is so critical because I leaned a lot on practitioners and people um, who I might have not interacted with before or outside the field of track and field and distance running to help solve these problems. So the athletes ultimately have a lot of fun, a lot of, you know, a success that left them happy with their time and energy spent in preparing and training and competing and just overall fond memories that hopefully will last them a lifetime. You know, I'm glad you told that story because it illustrates so many good concepts of being able to think outside of the box, being able to say, okay, this isn't, this isn't 
working. We're going to go in a totally different direction to try and give you like the ability to have, you know, a season and be injury free, but also because it gets to the whole point of it, which is it's not just running a running fast. It's like, what experience are you going to get out of it? And like, are you going to be able to join it, have fun and like, you know, make it part of something that you do. And I think so much of coaching, even this episode, we talk about the training and where's the limiting factor here and there and all that stuff. But it's also, you know, you got to make decisions that, you know, put your athletes in a, in a sitch or in a position to grow, develop and, and enjoy that process. You know? Yeah, when we talk about results, we often default right to time and place. But outcomes and results are also what we're talking about now. Memories, the experience, you know, just the joy of doing it. And we we forget because it's not fancy or sexy or gets a lot of like likes on social media as time or place does. But it's just as important, if not a more important outcome or result sometimes than the actual like you know, uh, mark you get in a competition. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So just something to consider there. All right. Well, you know, throughout this podcast, we've talked about limiting factors, essentially, you know, the law of the least minimum. And, you know, if I sit here and reflect and take away, I think it, it, it comes down to like, you know, you mentioned it. I talked about it a little bit is, is this presence and awareness, you know, presence, not only at practice as a coach or as an athlete, but also awareness of what, you know, what you don't know and, and how to, you know, how to keep that there, because those are the things that allow us to identify like where our limiting factors are, where our athletes limiting factors are. And then most importantly is go out and like find a solution to that or find more tools in your, or develop more tools in your toolbox so that you can solve the problem in a different way and not do what, you know, not only coaches, athletes, but humans in general do, which is default to the, the easiest solution or the thing within our grasp, which is often to just do more of the same thing we've been doing forever. Yeah. If you are unchallenged, whether you're an athlete or coach, you are limiting yourself, right? And that's where the law, the minimum kind of exists is if we think about, you know, an athlete, a coach, a team as a system, and there's two main types of systems, right? There's closed systems and open systems. But over time in a closed system, fewer, and this has been proven time and time again, fewer and fewer innovations are produced because by definition, the closed system isn't open to anything new. And so, it has an increasingly unchallenged um, and unchallengeable fundamental uh, mode of doing things. So it's like you hear this all the time, these closed minded or closed systems where it's like, we've been doing it this way and we had success 20 years ago doing it this way. Well, what about now? What's the overall experience now? And so being challenged and moving towards an open system approach is what we champion a lot of other coaches and athletes and hallmarks of successes is that fundamental evolution of adaptation where you're trying to get better by understanding and knowing more about what you don't know. And that comes from a diverse exposure to a lot of different types of learning for the athlete. That exposure to different types of learning might be strength and conditioning drills, might be deadlifts, might be um, hill sprints might be plyometrics, might be med ball slams. You know, the your environment and the constraints of your environment are going to dictate what you can and can't do. Thankfully, running and coaching athletes is a very simple and executable uh, um, idea and concept where you can use your environment to your advantage. Same thing here with coaching. If you're listening to this podcast, obviously you have um, some interest and um, desire to get better. But hopefully you're not just listening just to Steve and I. Hopefully it's not just our content. Hopefully there's other books, other people, other coaches you're conversing and interacting with regularly. And that's one thing I do personally as a coach. I go, every month I take an inventory and go, how many of my peers or colleagues have I reached out to? Or how many like continuing education 
opportunities, webinars, things like that, where it's like I get a real live interaction with a human being, pick their brain, talk about my problems. They can talk about their problems and have actually a conversation and dialogue so we can solve these things together. And if the if the you know number is less than two, I go, oh, crap, I got to step my game up because I'm not getting enough input. I'm not getting enough diverse exposure to novelty or something different that's going to challenge me and force me to grow and level up. Yep, exactly. Challenge yourself. That's what it's all about. And I love love that you pointed out, don't just listen to us, listen to others. And as a reminder, that's why we created the Scholar Program, because it's not just about us. We detail every training system that we can find. And then as we pointed out now, now we invite other coaches in for that interaction so that we can level up not only others around us, but help level up, keep challenging John and I's uh, belief systems on, on, on training so that we are never getting stuck and always evolving and, and figuring out more tools to help us solve those problems. So it's huge. It's why we also started that training talk, the monthly training talk, the second yep. Sunday of every month where we invite scholars all throughout the globe to get on zoom call and Steve and I kick it off. But the idea is to get dialogue and, you know, perspective on how different coaches and are going about solving the training conundrum and athlete performance problem from all different levels and abilities throughout the world. It's, it's phenomenal. Exactly. So if you haven't checked it out, we look forward to interacting with you guys and thanks again for listening until next time. Take care. Good luck coaching.